Well, good morning. Thank you, worship team, and thank you for coming this morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to the Old Testament, the book of Ezra. We're looking today at Ezra chapter 5, at least for the uh, first few moments. Ezra 5, as we continue our study. I saw a cartoon where a guy is saying, I'm not a procrastinator. I just prefer to do my work in a deadline-induced panic. (laughs) There was a research study done on one particular year that showed that American taxpayers overpaid $473 million one year due to hurried and harried mistakes in late filing. Procrastination is costly. Spiritual procrastination is costly. When there are things that we have intended to do spiritually, when there are things that God has intended and directed us to do about some spiritual commitment, some spiritual uh, opportunity, Something that is God-directed, and we have put it off, and the calendar keeps flipping by month after month, and it still hasn't happened. Today, in our study of Ezra, we find that this has happened with the people of Israel, 500 and some years B.C., because they had procrastinated a very important task for 15 years. They had good intentions, God had done an amazing thing in that he had delivered 50,000 Jews from a a season of exile in Babylon, then known as Persia. He had moved in the heart of King Cyrus to allow them, in fact, urge them to go back to Jerusalem to do one particular primary thing. And that was to rebuild the temple so that worship where God intended it, as God intended it, would be restarted. God had invested in this. And they had begun to build the temple. And now it had languished some 15 years. Let's just kind of review and follow the story a little bit of of what happened. If you go back to chapter 3 in Ezra verse 10, we find that when they first arrived, they, they got started immediately... First part of chapter 3, rebuilding an altar within months of arrival, and probably within a little more than a year, they began to rebuild, lay the foundation of the temple. 3 verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. That's good news. Go to chapter 4, verse 4. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid. 
to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So did this attempt to discourage and create fear work? Go to the last verse of chapter 4, now verse 24. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That's 15 years after their arrival. And the project was halted and nothing had happened in spite of their good intentions. We're going to see a progression today of how the people of Israel were passive. They were selfish until finally again they were obedient. Passive and selfish Combine them, what you have is procrastination. Passive and selfish. And so how does God handle spiritual procrastination? He sends his word, chapter 5, verse 1 now. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Idu, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So God sent Prophets to rebuke them. Verse 2. <clears throat> then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, set to work to rebuild the, temp- the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. This is like a summary of what happened. They had delayed. God sent the prophets. It stimulated action, and they restarted their rebuilding Process. Fifteen years later, Haggai and Zechariah, you may recognize, uh, both uh, have a book of the Old Testament among the um, what we call the minor prophets, the third to the last and second to the last books of the Old Testament, which, by the way, tells you they, the books in the order we have them in the Bible are not necessarily chronological because we have to insert Haggai and Zechariah into the story of uh, Ezra Historically, Zechariah's dad is listed here, and he was one of those who returned uh, from Babylon. So being a later generation, we can guess that Zechariah might have been somewhat of a younger adult prophet. Haggai, we don't know his lineage, it's not listed. We assume he came back from Babylon as well, but was he perhaps older, some have thought. Um, He makes mention of how the previous temple was more glorious. Was he maybe one of those who had actually grown up in Israel, was then deported as a young man, exiled into Babylon, and now came back, so he had seen the previous temple. He's not mentioned again after his uh, prophetic ministry that we'll see in the book of Haggai. Why did the project stop? What we just read in chapter 4, verse 4, is it was because of Fear, and we might say the fear was legitimate. It was a real threat. We talked last week how our enemy, capital E, Satan, uses fear. Satan will use uh, compromise of, of God's word. Satan wants to use any tactic at all to stop our spiritual progress. Wherever God is taking us, that's what God, Satan would like to stop. Does Does God consider fear a good reason to stop spiritual progress? Evidently not, because he sent the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to stimulate them to go on in spite of their fear. We want to look today at some of the causes of spiritual procrastination 
And so this first one is worthy of some review and attention. The fear of opposition, it seemed legitimate to hesitate in light of threats. We all understand what fear does, but fear had created a hesitation that became essentially permanent. And had God not intervened and interjected His Word into the lives of these believers, it would have brought an end to this phenomenal experience of God having moved 50,000 Jews across the country, 900 miles to Israel. It would have ended what God was doing. Has fear, <clears throat> in some way, caused you to hesitate on the way God is directing you spiritually where you were once going? Because we know fear is paralyzing. You might remember some of those early fears. Do you remember the first time you jumped off a diving board? Do you remember the, uh, the first time that you pushed off on that bike without the training wheels? Remember the first time you had to stand before a class with, to give a, a book report? But you did it. You did it because there was a greater desire you had than the level of your fear. You wanted the independence of that bike. You wanted to be able to swim with your friends. You wanted to go on and move on to the next class. You, you, you pushed past your fear because of a greater desire. The only thing that will push us out of the inertia of some kind of a spiritual passivity or procrastination is if we have a greater desire for that which is greater. Vertically, knowing God, pleasing God, worshiping God, experiencing Him at work in our life according to His plan, His giftedness in our lives. So fear had created the passivity, but God sent two prophets to push them through that state of passivity. It says in verse 1, they prophesied in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. They were to recognize God's authority when he said, all right, get going. Second cause of spiritual procrastination is the deception of good intentions. They ignored God's plan for them by intending to do it. When you tell a child to clean his or her room, you probably didn't mean three or four hours from now or tomorrow sometime if you want to. The idea of saying, sending a child to go clean their room is that they would do it now. But it's incredible the way a child might interpret the timing of go clean your room. It's incredible the, the kind of rationale they might think. And, and, and they mean to do it. They don't mean to disobey, but they delay, which amounts to disobedience. Jesus told a parable in uh, Matthew 21 about two sons. It says a father sent a son to go, his son to go work in the vineyard, and his son said no. But then later on it came to his senses, and the son went ahead and worked. He told the second son to go work in the vineyard, and he said, sure, Dad. But he never got to it. And Jesus asked, so which one did the will of his father? It was actually the one who said no, but ended up doing it. Because what matters is what we do, 
not what we intend to do. The danger of spiritual procrastination is that it doesn't feel like disobedience. Certain things feel like sin and disobedience. If you you lose your temper, it's like, oh, that was wrong. But there's something about the passivity of procrastination. It doesn't even feel like disobedience. It just becomes normal. And in fact, our mind tells us we intend to do something. And we let ourselves off the hook and we don't even sense that disobedience. Fear. Deception of good intentions. We'll see one more later when we go to the book of Haggai. So, God sent Haggai and Zechariah. And when he did, Zerubbabel and Jezedek, those were the two, uh, rather, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, those were the two men responsible. That was the community or governor that was appointed for this project, and that was the high priest that was appointed. They did respond. They were good men. We've seen them as good and godly men, and yet they were also pulled down by the passive nature of the people. But here's the difference between a godly and ungodly leader. Godly leaders respond when reminded. So we see in this passage, we'll see in Haggai, that they responded when God began to work in them through his word. And the two prophets, they didn't just give their message and walk away. What does it say in verse 2? The prophets of God were with them, helping them. It doesn't say whether they were you know, helping carry bricks in the actual construction or if they, if they just continue to be there to encourage them because we need mentors, we need encouragers. That's, that's why we need to be together. We need to be around people who are following the Lord because somehow that accumulates a sense of urgency to that which is important. So those two verses in Ezra summarize what happened, how it stopped, and how it restarted. Wouldn't you like to know exactly what Haggai told them that got them restarted? Fortunately, we know. So turn to the book of Haggai. You've probably been reading there recently in your devotional time anyhow, right? (laughs) No, if you can't find it, it's the third to the last book. Or if you're using the Bibles that we provide here, it's page 769, third to last book of the Old Testament, that is, where we find out exactly what Haggai said. And so uh, the rest of today and uh, in the next couple weeks, we're going to be looking at the message of Haggai because the message of Haggai is part of the book of Ezra. It's what he said. So a little more detail, chapter 1, Haggai 1. One In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So we know exactly when it was. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Uh, there are three uh, time notes in the book of Haggai, this is the sixth month of that year. Chapter 2, verse 1 refers to the seventh month. Chapter 2, verse 10 refers to the ninth month. And so we know this is kind of late August, early September in the Jewish calendar of, 
of um, the year 520, so <clears throat> three months, September to December, essentially. God had not spoken to the people of Israel through a prophet since before the exile. So some 70 years have passed since God actually spoke. He had been silent in, his dis- in their disobedience, in his discipline, he had not spoken. But when he spoke, the first thing he addressed was their procrastination and thus their priorities. If you have found yourself in a spiritual rut of delay or passivity, uh, God will want to get your attention by pointing out Priorities. That's what this passage is about. Uh, he might sound. He might sound. God might sound a little bit like a like a mother reminding. I did tell you, this is what you're to do. And this half a day has gone by. You played outside this whole day, and you did not do what I asked you to do. God heard what they said. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. It's like saying, Mother, the time has not yet come for the room to be cleaned. Don't try saying that. You suppose God feels some parental frustration with us as his children? Knowing the reasoning of our, of our mind? What specifically, what, what specifically had caused this delay? What had, what had been going on in their rationale that they would say, For 15 years, the time has not yet come. We'll get to it. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Ouch. He had a very specific statement about why they were procrastinating. He knew why. It is this third reason. We saw the fear of opposition. We saw the deception of good intentions. We now see the distraction of lesser priorities. Sacrificing important things for seemingly urgent things. There was every reason why they needed to work on their houses. They had come back. They had come back from Babylon to Israel Two houses that we assume were abandoned for maybe 50 to 70 years. What's a house look like after no one lives in it for that long? There was some rebuilding that had to be done, and that was urgent. For 15 years? You see, what had become urgent had caused them to neglect that which was important. So the problem was not that they were doing bad things. They were not worshiping idols. The problem is not they were worshipping what was evil, they were worshipping on the altar of lesser things. Lesser things that become distraction to the important things. It was a legitimate need. God gets very real with us, and when he does, he gets real on issues where we live, which is so often time and money, our most cherished cherished resources there's never enough time never enough money right often we see a a tug of war in our lives between time and money I could have more money if I spent more time earning money 
Oh, but if I want more time, I might have less money. And so we envision this tug-of-war between time and money, and that becomes the, 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 the conflict within us. And God says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Your conflict is not really between time and money. Your conflict is between time and money and me. It's not a horizontal conflict, it's a vertical conflict. And if our vertical attention is drawn to him, do you suppose he can make time and money work in our lives? See, the vertical priority was the problem. And so he says, I want to talk to you about your time and money. You're living in paneled houses while my house remains in ruin. Or over to verse 9, we'll see it later. Each of you is busy with his own house. So there's a time commitment and there's a money commitment because of this reference to paneled houses. Why do you say that? He didn't just say you're busy with your houses. You're busy with your, you're living in your paneled houses. Paneling was an upgrade in those days. Remember when paneling was fashionable? (laughs) You remember putting in paneling? Then you remember tearing it off (laughs) and replacing it with something else. But... No, paneling was an upgrade. Paneling was generally a reference to the the homes of kings. Palaces had paneling. Ahab, the king, even had paneling of ivory. The commoner's house in Israel at the time was generally made of, of mud walls, mud bricks, and then you could plaster it inside. You, you put up some stakes, and, uh, and then you can plaster over it. That was a typical house. In fact, the only other time that uh, it's mentioned that regular people had <coughs> paneling was Jeremiah 22, where uh, the prophet's actually rebuking them. He says, are you trying to compete with kings with your paneled houses while you ignore the poor and make money dishonestly? I mean... There's kind of a negative connotation to this, that they had paneling. Now, there isn't anything instinctive or or, or directly wrong with paneling. The direct command or the direct rebuke was about priorities. Priorities. So there's a contrast. You You have gone too far with this while the temple is still a pile of rubble. When you arrived in Israel, both needed attention. The houses were a mess that needed work, and the temple was a pile of rubble. What did I send you to do? I sent you to address the worship issue as the most important, but the house became most urgent. And so you've put the wrong thing on top, though both need to be done. Money and time. You can see why this passage is often used uh, to motivate giving to a church building program, right? Put the money in a building fund, don't get that new kitchen floor. Well, that's entirely up to an individual and the Lord. We have the privilege, I think, of looking at this passage toward the end of our building program. And for me, it is not so much a passage of exhortation to us, but of encouragement and illustration of what God actually has done. Because there have been house projects and major expenses put on hold because God moved people to give. And for that, we should all be praising Him. And I don't know who you are or what you sacrificed, but I'm pretty sure God has worked in your own life and finances as well.
money. The other priority is time. Time, that precious resource. And that's where this battle goes on between that which is urgent and that which is important. Do we understand the difference? There's a book called The Tyranny of the Urgent by Charles Hummel. He wrote, Your greatest danger is letting the urgent things crowd out the important. That's just a life principle. It's urgent. You've got to have lunch today, right? You're going to make lunch. It's urgent you're going to go to work tomorrow. It's, it's urgent you've got to get the mortgage paid, and this has to be fixed, and this has to be done. And, and yet there are so many important things that can be neglected. So we think about that which God calls us to that's important, to be in his word, to be in prayer, to have spiritual conversations in our families, to worship with other believers, to engage our spiritual gifts, to, to make disciples. All these things are important, but they can be crowded out by the urgent. Distractions. Do you know what, do you know what distracts you? It's, it's different, whether it's time or money issues, whatever it might be. What is distracting you from what is important? That will be a cause of what is delaying your spiritual progress. God noticed, and God is very direct about what he did when he noticed. Verse 5. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Sounds like something a dad or a mom might say to begin a conversation, right? You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. And this one's interesting. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Anybody identify with that one? (laughs) I think God has a bit of a sense of humor with that picture. It can seem like a really big check when you deposit it, right? But somehow the, the months last longer than the money. This is specifically in the sixth month, verse 1 said. Late August, early September in the Jewish calendar. It's when the figs, pomegranates, grapes were harvested. It's now the launch of the uh, final ripening of the barley and wheat harvest to be uh, cut, threshed, winnowed, stored. It's about a month away from the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is what they started to celebrate, Ezra chapter 3, to celebrate the incoming of the harvest. Something that farmers do about a month before harvest is you really start to look at how your crops are doing. Is this going to be good or not? You mean what they talk about in the coffee shops as farmers the month before is how your crops looking? And so it's like God a month before is saying, "How are your crops doing? How's it been going these last fifteen years?" You've careful thought. You've planted, but you haven't harvested very much. Have you? Remember, God was described in Ezra 5.1 as the God who is over Israel. 
God who is in control of Israel. God who, who has his hand on the throttle of everything. God who has his hand on the weather. God is in control of how much money we have. It's something that Priscilla and I have said through our years of marriage over and over to each other. We will only have as much money as God wants us to have. So if something breaks, God wanted the guy at the auto shop to have it. Things go without breaking and you seem to get ahead a little bit. Why did God bless us with this? God, we will only have as much money as God wants us to have. This introduces a principle that Haggai will address again, chapter 2, verse 8, called stewardship. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. That, that's like your foundational financial pr- biblical principle. The silver and the gold, they're mine. There's whose? God. So all money is God's money. We don't own anything. Therefore, we are stewards or managers for a time. We know that because we don't take it with us. So what money becomes is a teaching tool, an opportunity for understanding greater things and experiencing greater things I don't know what God is teaching you financially God was teaching them something by withholding something and that's not to say that every financial time of financial need is a result of sin but I would say this every financial issue we face is a spiritual test whether it's a blessing Of abundance, whether it's a need or lack, it is a financial, thus spiritual test. Uh, If you have children, at some stage of their life, you were totally in charge of what they had materially. You could have given them more stuff. You had the opportunity to withhold stuff. You can give them money, you can withhold money, right? You had to make those decisions in some rational way and because you love them, you probably decided to do what you did because you thought that was best for them to have or to withhold. Would it not, and we make mistakes, right? We, do, we, we can probably think back, I wish I had done that one different. God never says, I wish I hadn't done that. God always knows exactly what he is doing when he withholds or when he blesses And he does it as part of his spiritual testing, spiritual growth in our lives. Every plan is personal. Every plan is individually arranged. And so the first step that we must come to is to come to a place of surrender of ownership and say, God, what are you teaching me through this? And I think we know what he wants. Verse 7 and 8. This is what the Lord Almighty says. And he repeats, Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house. Here's the purpose statement. So that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. This is the goal. This is the core issue of everything material, everything financial in our lives. Really everything in terms of of, of every resource, time, abilities 
It's so that God may take pleasure in that which he gave us, so that he might be honored in that which he entrusts to us. Build the temple so I may take pleasure, so that I might be honored. Pass and fail is based on our desire, our effort towards honoring him. The currency of heaven is not gold or silver. Gold is something you walk on in heaven. The currency of heaven is God's glory. And so our goal must be, am I glorifying God? The goal of God in this temple was not, how nice will it be, because that will determine my glory. In fact, God proved himself to be rather indifferent when he allowed the Babylonians to destroy the beautiful grand temple of Solomon. He says, that doesn't matter. Why? Because the people who are going there to worship, they're not honoring me. So this thing is worthless. On the other hand, while he's indifferent to the destruction of that temple, he was not disappointed in the relative mediocrity of the next temple that Zerubbabel was building. There were others who had seen the other temple. They were bothered. God wasn't bothered because he was, as we sang, going back to the heart of worship. That is what matters in the currency of God. And so he goes back to the issue of what he had done, verse 9. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? Declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house which remains in ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withhold their due, withheld their due, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. God had no hesitation saying, I'm responsible. Because that's what God is. He is responsible. And he is responsible to draw our attention to not ourselves, but his glory. So the, the core of this passage really is verse, the last part of verse 8. The reason I want you to spend your money and time on the timber to build the house is simply this. I want you to transform your goal from self to God. From your passive, selfish focus to will you glorify me. So as we think about our own resources of time and money, that is the question. Are we invested in God's glory? Are we have we rewired our purpose so that we think of all things financial in terms of his glory? Because that's what stewards do. Stewards seek to glorify God with all material resources because a steward says, this, was, this is God's, he entrusted it to me, so how do I glorify him with it? Every stage, earning, giving, spending, saving. So, earning. Do we glorify God by how we earn? Are we diligent? And diligent is working in such a way that we avoid the ditch of laziness or the ditch of obsession. You understand the ditches, right? We usually criticize people in the opposite dish, ditch, right? Do we understand the road of diligence? Giving. Is giving a first thing or a leftover thing? Solomon had written some generations before, Honor the Lord with your wealth, 
with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. And the term is not simply give. Honor. We we can probably stop giving and see it as this is honoring God. It, it changes our focus. And with giving first fruits, it means I trust God with the rest. Does my giving honor God? Spending. Do I think in terms of affordability or appropriateness? If you can afford it, it's God's will, right? Well, I know this. If you can't afford it, it's not God's will. <laughs> But does that mean that if you can't afford it, it's... No. And so God directs us about appropriateness. Has, have you prayed about the appropriateness of spending? God has individual plans, and somehow in God's individual plan, David lived in an incredible palace in God's will. Abraham was a very wealthy man in God's will. And then there's John the Baptist. I'm just reading his story. And he, he's, he's, he's living out there in the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey in God's will and gets beheaded. If you ever doubt that God has a personal plan, look at some of the godly examples and the, and the, and the, the wide scope of differences. So you can't judge anybody else. What is God's will for you? Saving. The same Type of an issue? Is it a disciplined, God-directed savings, or is it an obsession that it's all about me and taking care of myself? Whatever it might be, is our focus drawn back to honoring God? Because that that is the that is the goal God had that I may take pleasure and be honored in it. That's why I want you to get back to the temple. The good news starts in verse twelve. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. There's incredible hope, isn't there? For those who are spiritually passive, those who have become spiritually selfish, now have become obedient. Why? End of verse 12. Because they recognized the authority of God, he had sent them. And they respected the authority of God. They feared him. Recognizing and respecting. If we do not understand the authority of God's word, we will never turn to it. We will always find excuses and our own personal explanations and twists on the word of God. But they heard Haggai, he was a very pointed, he had a very pointed message from God, and they respected, they, they recognized that authority, and they respected it. The people feared the Lord. There's a right kind of fear. Uh, the other night, some of our kids were home from out of state and grandkids, and so we all went together and, and, uh, to the Ozaki County Fair. And I noticed that at, at walking through one of these uh, areas that you know, crowded, but there was a, a, a uniformed police officer here and another one over here. Nothing was going wrong. They were just there. But have you ever noticed how when you, you see that squad car pulled over to the side or you, or you see a, a police officer in uniform, you just had this kind of instant awareness, kind of a self-check, right? 
There's this sense of respect because these men and women are part of our community who care about our, 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 what is good, what is safe, and if necessary, they will enforce the law. And so we have a certain appropriate respect for them. Procrastination is a disrespect of God's authority spiritually. The police officer says, you know, detour. You just turn, don't you? You, you don't insist. You, you turn. If you respect your mom's authority and she says, go clean your room, you lay something aside and you go clean your room. And if God has touched your heart with something, as we think about this experience all those years ago, of something that you intended to do and you know God intended you to do, do you respect his authority? It might be something in our study. It might be something you read in this past week. It might be something that you've delayed for 15 months or 15 years. Does God have your respect? Just do it. Nike stole that concept from the Bible, I think. Just do it. God has worked in your heart. God has touched your heart. Just take the step. And when you do, I love verses 13 and 14 to see what God does. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the, of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, and it gives the date. When there is a transformed goal that they embraced the new purpose, we have neglected the glory of God by neglecting his temple, when, when they respond to his authority and they begin to obey, then God comes along and says, I'm going to be with you in this. Because there's probably going to be some sacrifice involved. You're going to continue to face some fears. You're going to have some perceived loss if you commit to what I've asked you to do. And so you're going to need some support. And God comes along and says, I am with you. A verse that many Christians have heard and perhaps quoted, either from here or often we remember this one, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Ever heard that one? Do you know the context? I mean, it applies broadly. You can apply this to anything that you're going through that's hard. But here's the context. Hebrews 13.5, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So whatever the financial conundrum is, as well as every other health issue, time issue, stress issue, whatever it is, God is with you and will not forsake you. And so as you would seek to begin to do what he's guided you to do, then he'll be with you. And not only will he be with you, he will empower you. So after telling us in verse 12, who obeyed Zerubbabel, Joshua and the people. Now he says in verse 14, it's because the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua 
and the people. So obedience is not something we can even do on our own power. But as we refocus and seek to obey his word, he works still today by his spirit empowering us. Has fear, the deception of good intentions, or distractions kept you from what God wants for you? Only a greater desire about that which is greater can replace and transform you from a passive or selfish state to an obedient state in which you experience the work of God powerfully, being used exactly as he designed you to be used. Let's pray. Father, we uh, hear your voice many times uh, in general, sometimes in very specific ways. Lord, I know your spirit is at work stirring us. Thank you for this, the many, many ways in which you have worked in our church family. I thank you for uh, people who have come to know you as Savior, for those who have declared their faith, for those who have taken initial steps of growth and discipleship, for those who are serving. And Lord, you know that we are all in process. You know that we all stumble. You know where we hesitate. You know our fears and insecurities. Lord, I pray you'd help us to take our eyes off of ourselves and inadequacies and find strength because we now refocus ourselves to your glory and to your purposes uh, into the coming days. And we recommit ourselves to that. Thank you for the cross by which you committed yourself to us and have made it all worthwhile. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.